There we go. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for uh, your house. We thank you for this church, Lord, and for all these people that come together each week to hear your word, uh, to support your work. Lord, I just pray that um, you would bless our time together today as we uh, look to your word, as we look to be changed by it, and that, uh, Lord, you would bless us as we prepare to to uh, praise you and to worship you in the service this morning and to hear the preaching of your word from Pastor Adam. In your holy and precious name we pray, amen. <clears throat> All right, so today we get to do something different than what we've been doing. We get to start a new series today. And I'm excited about this series because this series is different than uh, the Ten Commandments. Not that I didn't like doing the Ten Commandments. I love doing that. But this series is different than the Ten Commandments because this is an exegetical series. All right, this is a series on the book of Colossians. And I'm excited to get into this text with you. But actually today we're not getting into the text. <laughs> today we have an introduction to the book of Colossians. And uh, there's a number of things that we're going to do today as we um, try to get a big picture grasp of the book before we start to dig into the details of it. We're going to look at um, the author of Colossians today. We'll look at um, the Colossians themselves, the city of Colossae, what kind of a city it was. We'll look at the, uh, the purpose of the epistle, why Paul wrote it, some of the major themes that are going to be in it. And then we'll look at uh, the structure of the letter and figure out you know, the, the main pieces of it and how they fit together. And I think it's important to, to have sort of an introductory session like what we're doing this morning because um, when we go into the text, we're going to be going into the text verse by verse in great detail because that's what I like to do. And what I like to do is what we're going to do. So we're going to look at the text in great detail. And because of that, then, we want to have a big picture understanding of the book itself so that we don't get lost in the details. Now, we want to understand what it's saying as a whole so that we can look at the details and be more uh, effective that way. Now, when it comes to um, doing an exegetical series like this, a series where we are looking at a book of the Bible, namely Colossians, there's two primary approaches that one could take in looking at any biblical book, whether it's you know an epistle or a historical book or a prophetical book or a gospel or anything. There's two primary approaches. All right, one approach would be to essentially summarize sections of the book each week. This is very popular today. Um, a lot of times people will do, they'll say like, you know, they're going to do a sermon series on Ephesians or something. Right? And so what they do then is they sort of do one sermon on each chapter. And what they do in those sermons on each chapter is they essentially pick one verse or one thought in the chapter and then they summarize it and then they talk about it. And then give some applications and things. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? I mean, you are sort of, you're preaching the Word of God, you're getting what the Bible says, you're trying to, you know, uh, explain it to people and that sort of thing. But um, that is not the way that we're going to approach Colossians here. Right? The way that I'm going to teach Colossians is not to, you know, read the text and then summarize one thing out of it and move on. The way that I like to approach teaching books of the Bible and the way that I've done it in the past is I like to do it in the style of the way that Luther and Calvin did in the Reformation. 
See, one of the things that's interesting about the Reformation is that it, it, it revived a kind of teaching and preaching of the Bible that had been you know, lost, for the most part, in the Middle Ages. In the High Middle Ages, when the Roman Catholic Church was dominant in the Western world, and the Renaissance was happening, and the Reformation hadn't quite happened, there was a, a very specific way that church services usually operated. And the way that a church service operated was after you got done with all the liturgy and so on, the priest would get up to the pulpit and he would essentially give something like a two, three, four minute um, thoughts from the priest kind of a thing. It was called a sermon. But it was just a few minutes long. Maybe he'd read a verse of the Bible. Maybe he wouldn't. But he'd essentially just share some thoughts about how the people could prepare for the real center of the service, which wasn't the preaching of the word, but it was rather the participation in the Mass, in the Eucharist, in the Lord's Supper. That was the center of the service for the medieval church, because that's where the true forgiveness of sins was in their theology. They thought that they were going to get it from partaking of the bread and wine rather than from actual faith in Jesus Christ. And so there wasn't much emphasis placed on the Word of God, and, and preaching was almost gone. It was just a couple of minutes of wise words from the priest kind of a thing going on for the sermon. But when Luther and Calvin stepped onto the scene and the Reformation began, and they were, uh, did all their teaching and preaching in their churches, what they did was they centered the service around God's Word. And no more was there going to be a two or a three minute thought from the priest kind of a thing, but it was going to be a long exposition verse by verse, of books of the Bible. And that's what Luther did, that's what Calvin did, that's what the rest of the Reformers did. They didn't just summarize things, they didn't just pick a few of their favorite verses and cherry-picking around the Scripture. No, they preached books of the Bible all the way through, every verse, so that their people could have a firm grasp and understanding of what the Word of God actually says. And that's why, if you'll talk to Pastor Adam about it, you'll see that's the reason why he preaches books of the Bible, why he's so passionate about that when he's preaching Sunday morning and Sunday evening. And he doesn't, he doesn't do topical series, not that there's anything sinful or evil about that, but he preaches books of the Bible. He preaches through John, he preaches through 1 Samuel, he preaches through 1 Peter, all these different books. That's Reformation preaching right there. It's taking the whole counsel of God and delivering it to the people. That's the kind of thing you see in Scripture, too. That's what Moses did. That's what Nehemiah did. You can see that as you read through uh, both the Old and the New Testaments. So that's what we're doing, long story short, in this Colossians series. I'm not just going to pick random verses and talk about them. We're going to look at the whole book of Colossians and try to understand Paul's arguments, look at every verse, and really get the full grasp of what Paul is trying to teach us in this letter, okay? So that's what we're doing. So, getting into then our introduction to this book, because again, as I said, we're not actually looking at Colossians this week in terms of the actual text. This is kind of an orientation to the book, a big picture, so that we can get into the details next week as we start looking at it. So first of all, I'm sure, I see most of you have your Bibles open. You're probably looking at Colossians right now. You should be able to tell me very quickly, and I've already given it away, who is the author of this epistle? Who? Paul. Paul, that's right. The Apostle Paul. A guy we are all very familiar with. We know Paul well. 
The man who we read about all over the place in the book of Acts, who spent the whole part of his early life studying Jewish theology under the great teacher Gamaliel, who was an avid Jewish uh, person and theologian, and who hated Christians, went door to door, dragging them out of their houses, throwing them in prison, killing some of them, approved of the stoning of Stephen. This man, who then went to Damascus one day, I think that, I don't remember which chapter, it might be chapter 9 of Acts, where he goes to Damascus and on the road to Damascus, Jesus appears to him, blinds him, makes him blind. He goes to Damascus. He's led to Damascus, actually, because he's blind. Meets someone, gets healed, comes to Jesus, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, because the Lord has changed his heart, Paul begins to witness and argue for the Christian faith in the Jewish synagogues, the very places where he worshipped as a Jew. And his life is so radically transformed. He goes on three missionary journeys in Acts, preaches all over the place, leads countless people to Jesus, plants all kind of churches all over the place in the Mediterranean world. Here, he plants one in Corinth, where he wrote First and Second Corinthians, or sorry, to the church in First and Second Corinthians. He wrote First uh, and Second Thessalonians to the church in Thessalonica, which is right here. He wrote Philippians to that church. Uh, he went to Rome. All kinds of things that Paul did. That's the guy that we're talking about here. He's the one who wrote this epistle. And much like all the rest of the epistles, he writes it to a specific church. As I already pointed out, we've got different cities all over the place here that he was writing to. Some of the churches that he wrote to, he wrote multiple epistles to. And in this particular epistle that we're going to study in these coming weeks, he wrote to the Colossians. And that is uh, the people that are a part of the church of Colossae. And Colossae is located about right here. Just to give you a bit of orientation here to what in the world this map is, uh, this is modern-day Turkey that you're looking at over here. So you can see Colossae is kind of in southern Turkey. Uh, it was called Asia Minor at the time, one of the Roman provinces. Now, as I uh, teach books of the Bible, one of the things that you may see me doing is I'm going to have a very poorly drawn map up here on the whiteboard pretty frequently, okay? And that's because... When I'm reading the scripture, I'm very in tune to geography because I think geography is important in helping us see where these places are that these things are taking place. When I was in high school, and this is, you know, actually it wasn't that long ago that I was in high school, but I think it's long ago in my mind. When I was in high school, and I would read through the scriptures, and I would read in the Gospels, Jesus went to Capernaum, or Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Or Jesus was in Caesarea Philippi, or something like that. My mind would just kind of forget instantly what I just read, because those names meant nothing to me. I didn't know where it was, and I didn't really care where it was because I'd never been there, and it just it just didn't register. Didn't care about these places. Not that I didn't care about you know what the Bible says, but they, they just didn't mean anything to me. These places because I didn't know my geography. I didn't know where things were. But that changed a lot when about two years ago, I had the privilege of going on a two-week trip to Israel. And I went with my um, college professor, uh, uh, president, and the academic dean. And we went to uh, Israel for two weeks on an amazing tour. We went to Jerusalem. 
We went to Caesarea. We went to the Sea of Galilee and sailed across it on a boat. We went to uh, Caesarea. We went to Masada on the Dead Sea. I mean, we went to all of these amazing places. And now, now when I'm in my Bible and I read, Jesus went to Capernaum. See, now that name means something to me because I know where it is. I can see it. I know it's on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. I can see the Sea of Galilee next to the city. I went to the ruins of Capernaum and saw the first century, tab- or the first century synagogue where Jesus was. And I saw the ruins of Peter's house, the Apostle Peter's house. At least what they think was his, probably his house. And so suddenly now these names mean something. And while I can't take you all on a trip to Israel, unfortunately, I wish I could, uh, the best I can do is draw a map for you because some of these locations are really important for understanding uh, what's going on in these places. And the reason why I have the map up here is not just simply to show you where Colossae is located, where this church is that Paul is writing to, but actually it's to tell you a little bit about the city itself, which will be important when we get into the epistle to understand what, uh, some of the issues that Paul is dealing with. So Colossae, the city that I've marked out for us here, by the way, so you can see the map a little bit. Um, uh, Colossae was a very, before the Roman Empire, so before the time of Paul, Colossae was a very industrious city. It was very, very profitable. It was uh, full of wealth. And their main industry that they participated in for the rest of the known world was uh, wool actually. They shipped wool all over the place, and they made tons of money off of it. And Colossae was a serious place of industry because there was another city located right here on the coast, and that city was called Ephesus, another city where Paul visited and where he um, wrote the Epistle to the Ephesians. And the city of Ephesus was on the shore, and there was a trade route from Ephesus down to Colossae, and that trade route then continued down into Israel and Palestine and Samaria. And so all the ships that sailed into Ephesus, which was another major city, had to go through Colossae in order to get over here into uh, the Middle East. And so what that meant is that Colossae not only had a massive amount of wealth because of their own wool industry and other industries, but it was also a major city on the trade route. So they had tons of visitors coming in and out all the time. And that's actually how Colossae got its first church. Colossae got its first church because someone in Ephesus, his name was Epaphras, someone in Ephesus heard Paul preaching there in Acts 19 and traveled on this trade route to Colossae and planted the church. The Apostle Paul never actually went to Colossae himself. Someone else plan of the church, and now Paul is writing his letter there. But Colossae, uh, before the Roman Empire, like I said, was very industrious. But by the time we get to the uh, period where Rome took over the area, and Rome now had control of this area, Colossae's industry began to die. It began to dry up. And the reason is because Rome built cities over here, like so. This one uh, was Laodicea, which you probably heard about. It's mentioned in the scriptures a number of times, Laodicea, and then um, this one was uh, Hierapolis. And so what happened is the Romans built another trade route like this, from Ephesus to there. And because these cities were bigger, and they were Roman cities, 
this trade route to Colossae dried up and no one used it anymore. It's kind of like what happened in America when the interstate system was built. You know, before the interstate, you had county roads and state roads and all of these like little gas stations and, and little cafes and those sorts of things because everyone was driving on these old state roads to get places and they stopped at all these little towns and all these little businesses. But then when the interstate system was built, now people didn't really travel on the state roads for the most part. Now they were on the interstate because it was faster and more direct. And so all the other towns like Colossae here got bypassed and uh, people wanted to drive or ride their wagons, in this case, on the nice Roman road that was built. So Colossae lost a lot of its industry. And so Colossae, in the time of Paul, was a struggling economy. It was once great and mighty and powerful and wealthy. And now, in Paul's day, it is very much not that. And so Colossae is struggling to find its identity. And what actually ends up happening is that Colossae is going to find some of its identity in a lot of bad, false teaching. And that's what we're going to move into now. So we've got an idea of, of Colossae. We know where it is. It was once booming in its industry. Now it's waning. And Paul is writing his epistle to a church in Colossae, in a place of struggling economy. And Paul writes the epistle of the Colossians for this purpose. He writes it to combat heresies relating to salvation. Paul wrote Colossians to combat heresies relating to salvation. This is not an original purpose when it comes to epistles. Right? Almost every epistle in the scripture is written for that purpose, to fight heresies. Think about Jude, right? the, the book that I'm uh, preaching on on Sunday evenings here and there. Right? That epistle was written for the specific purpose of nullifying a heresy that was being believed by Jude's recipients. And that is that they were perverting the grace of God into sensuality. They were using God's grace as an excuse to sin, as a license to sin. And Jude is saying, no, you can't do this. Here's the consequences of what happens when you try to do this. And that's similar to what Paul's doing here. He's got a, a specific heresy or a few heresies in mind, and he's writing this epistle to silence them. Uh, now, what are these heresies? Well, um, one of them has to do with the sufficiency of Christ in salvation. And we're going to see this a lot when we get to uh, the second chapter of Paul's letter to the Colossians. And just to give you sort of an introduction to the heresy that he's dealing with, I think we need to understand that there are three primary there are three primary views of salvation among Christians, both among people who claim to be Christians and among people who uh, are actual true Christians. Okay, There's three major views of salvation. The first view is that salvation is by God's work and human works. Okay? That's the first view of salvation. Salvation is by God's work and human works. In other words, God has accomplished much of what we need to be saved. He sent Jesus to die on the cross to forgive our sins. But that's not enough. We still need to do something. In fact, we don't just need to do one thing. We need to do many things. We need to do X, Y, and Z. And we need to not do you know, A, B, and C. 
there are human works mixed with God's works in order to get salvation. This is the view, of course, of uh, not just you know Christian of some Christians, but it's a view of uh, Islam, view of Jehovah's Witness uh, movement. It's the view of Mormonism that it's our works plus God's works equals salvation. And this is also the view, by the way, of the Roman Catholic Church. They hold to this that God accomplished much of what we need for salvation, but there's still stuff we need to do. We need to avoid mortal sin. And if you do fall into mortal sin, well, you've got to go uh, to the sacrament of penance. You've got to do your works of satisfaction, your confession, all of those sorts of things. So it's God's work plus human works. That's the first view of salvation that many people have. Second view is that salvation is accomplished by God's work and a human work. Salvation is accomplished by God's work and a human work. So, notice this is different. The first view is that, is that uh, salvation is by God's work and human works, plural. We've got to do a bunch of things. The second view is that salvation is by God's work and a human work. So, there's only one thing that human beings need to do by themselves in order to be saved. God has accomplished everything else. We just need to do one thing. Anyone want to take a stab at what that one thing might be? We all know what that is. Y'all do? Mm -hmm. What is it? Believe. Yeah, that's right. Belief. Or we could just say faith, too. So notice, this one's more subtle. Right? We, we vehemently and quickly recognize this one being wrong right? as, as Protestant Christians. This one's a little more tricky. This one's a little more sly. In this view, salvation is accomplished by God's work and by one human work, namely the work of faith. And here's what's going on here. In this view, the idea is that faith is something that human beings do. Faith is something that God is waiting for human beings to do. God is on the edge of his seat in heaven, just hoping that I will have faith. He's done everything he can to secure salvation, but I gotta have faith. I just need to do a little bit. He's done, Billy Graham used to say, God has done 99% of the work for salvation. All you've got to do is 1%. That's this view. Faith is something I do in that view. Now, in contrast to that, then, the third view is that salvation is by God's work alone. Big period. Salvation is by God's work alone. And what distinguishes these two views is that in this view, faith is something that we muster up within ourselves. In the third view, where salvation is God's work alone, faith is a gift from God. That is, faith is something that God accomplishes in us by means of his effectual grace where he changes our stone-cold hearts into hearts of flesh, into hearts that love him and seek him and desire him so that we run to him. It's amazing. And this is why I think that for, for this third view, which is the reform view, this is why I think it's the most gracious out of the three. By far the most gracious out of the three. Because in these first two, God is simply making salvation possible. But in the third one, God isn't just making salvation possible. He's making salvation sure and definite. 
for his people. That's the ultimate graciousness, and it is what I believe the Bible teaches. And so what we're going to find out in Colossians is one of the heresies that Paul is dealing with, getting back to our original topic here, one of the heresies that Paul is dealing with is the question, is the work of God, is the work of Christ sufficient for salvation, or do we need to add human merits to it? And Paul is going to stamp out that with a resounding, no, we do not add human effort to salvation. It is 100% accomplished by God. Jesus' work is sufficient to save us. We don't need any kind of human work added. And so Paul is going to advocate for this right here, and he's going to do it in a Christological way. So that's the first heresy that Paul's dealing with. We're going to see that very clearly as we get into the text. Uh, Another issue that Paul is dealing with is he's dealing with the um, uh, Colossians hyper-spiritualized view of reality. That is, they have a super, hyper-crazy spiritual um, view of the way that things are. And we can see this in in various places. You're going to see in chapter 2 that the the Colossians are worshipping angels. Well, of course, they're not supposed to do that. Uh, They're not supposed to worship angels. You only worship the triune God. But the Colossians, nonetheless, are worshiping angels, or at least some of them are, and and Paul's saying, no, you don't do that. But you can see what what the Colossians have in mind is they're thinking, oh, these are spiritual beings. We need to to appease the spiritual beings. This is very much of a a kind of a Greek way of thinking. And so Paul says, no, you're not supposed to worship angels. Uh, Paul frequently mentions in this epistle the elemental spirits of the world. And when he does that, he's saying you are not to be trying to entertain thoughts about the elemental spirits of the world. You're not supposed to be trying to contact these spirits of the world. So the Colossians are trying to um, worship and appease and be in contact with and work with various spirits. They've got a hyper-spiritualized view of reality, and Paul's going to stamp that out. Now, what's interesting, if you are... uh, at all interested in church history, which I hope all of you are. Otherwise, we're going to have a talk afterward. Um, In church history, in this area of the world, a heresy arose in the second century called Montanism. Anyone ever heard of Montanism before? It's a little bit less known than something like Arianism or um, other heresies like that. But Montanism arose right here in this area where Colossae is. And Montanism, if you wanted to compare it to something, it's, it's somewhat analogous to the modern hyper-charismatic movements that we see today. Because what Montanism believed is they believed that um, Montanus, founder of their movement, um, was the promised paraclete or the promised helper that John talks about in his gospel. You remember Jesus says, I'm going to send a helper. I'm going to send a paraclete. And he is going to help you in your Christian faith. And of course, Orthodox Christianity said, oh, hey, awesome, that's the Holy Spirit. Jesus' promise was fulfilled at Pentecost in Acts 2 because the Holy Spirit is the helper. Well, according to the Montanists, no, there's no Holy Spirit actually, at least that's not what Jesus was talking about. No, the the fulfillment of the prophecy is our leader, Montanus. He is the helper that Jesus was going to send. And so what the Montanists believed was they believed that that Montanus and the rest of their leaders could utter prophecies 
That is new revelation. They could bring new messages from God. They were speaking in tongues. Um, some, some of them claimed to speak in other languages. Some of them claimed to speak angelic tongues. Um, and they believed that they had the authority to write new books of the Bible and to speak words that were just as authoritative as the Bible. Uh, it's kind of interesting <laughs> that we see some of that stuff going on today, right, in those hyper-charismatic sort of circles. And that is just a regurgitation of Montanism, second century heresy. The church declared it such. And so I, I just think that's interesting, that the stuff that Paul is dealing with among the Colossians, this hyper-spiritualized view of reality, is something that this whole region began to embrace in the next century or two after Paul wrote this. And it created this heresy that the church had to deal with in, those early, in that early second century. So that it's fascinating to me. We see that, that this epistle is, is in history. Right? This is, there's real things happening and real developments that happened as a result of the heresies that the Colossians were dealing with. Okay, so that is um, essentially the purpose of why Paul wrote the book of Colossians. He's dealing with heresies. Primarily, he's dealing with the heresy of salvation, where people are saying, we need to add works to salvation. And Paul is saying, no, the work of God and the work of Christ is sufficient for salvation. It is God alone who accomplishes it. And then he's also dealing with other issues like the, this um, uh, spiritual heresies. Okay, now what we want to do... In our last couple of minutes is probably the most important thing that we're going to do. And that is we want to look at the book of Colossians itself from a bird's eye view. And this is important because as we proceed, starting next week and continuing on, we are going to be analyzing each verse of Colossians very carefully in detail. Because we want to understand everything that God has to say, or as much as we can, at least. And as we do that, it's going to become difficult to remember a big picture. So I'm always going to be drawing you back to what we're going to talk about right now, and that is the big picture structure of Colossians, so that we don't get lost in the details, but that we can remember Paul's big picture movement in the epistle. What does he start with? What does he end with? How does he get there? What's his argument? That kind of thing. So... Essentially, what we can do is we can outline the book of Colossians in three primary sections. Right? And this is my own outline. I didn't get this from anywhere. This is just from my own study. I think we can outline the book of Colossians in three sections. Next week, we're going to look at the first section. And the first section is essentially the introduction is introduction and thesis. This is going to sound a little academic, but it's not. In the first 14 verses of Colossians, Paul is going to introduce himself as the author. He's going to say, hey, I'm writing to the, to the uh, Colossians. And then he's going to argue in the next 12 verses or so, verses 12 through 14, he's going to argue his main point for the epistle. And that is this. I just wrote it down here, so I'll read it to you. His main point is this. A pursuit of the genuine knowledge and wisdom of God through faith in Christ will result in the fruit of good works. I'll say that again. A pursuit of the genuine knowledge and wisdom of God through faith in Christ will result in the fruit of good works. Okay? 
And what you'll see, I don't know if you want to take a look at um, reading Colossians this week or if you just want to wait until uh, next Sunday when we look at it together, that's fine. But in those first 10, 12 verses of the epistle, Paul is going to argue that Christians, true Christians who, who seek and try to understand the knowledge of Christ and who truly understand it and respond with faith are going to be people who live lives characterized by faithfulness to the word of Jesus. Okay, that's his main thesis. And what we're actually going to see is the next two sections are the outworking and him proving this thesis. Because in the second section, he deals with the knowledge of Christ. And in the second section, he deals with Christian living. Now note his thesis, as I said before. The true knowledge of Christ for believers in Jesus Christ is going to result in fruit. Then he treats the knowledge of Christ. He says, here are the things you need to believe about salvation. Don't believe all these heresies. You need to believe in the true knowledge of Christ, which is that he is sufficient for salvation. He died on the cross. He accomplished forgiveness of sins. He accomplished reconciliation. Through faith in his name, you can be saved. That's the knowledge of Christ. And then those who respond to this knowledge and who understand it and who are changed by it, by the power of God, they are going to bear fruit. And then he moves into that third section, which is chapters 3 and 4, and he's going to deal with Christian living, with the specifics of it. How do Christians who have been changed by the knowledge of Jesus Christ live? What are things that they ought to do? In general, he talks about the removing of the old self, the getting rid of the sinful nature, mortifying it. Not that we ever truly fully get rid of it. Even Paul himself didn't. We mortify it. And then... He treats it more generally there, and then he goes into very specific things. Like, um, talks about, uh, uh, I'm trying to remember here, I don't have them written down. He talks about all of the uh, essentials of, of being, say, a Christian father, Christian wife, being a good Christian child. He talks about not getting drunk and those sorts of things, and he just very specific things. It's more general at first, and then moves into more specific things about how Christians ought to live. And what's interesting is, you know, this is a perfect epistle for the Christians in Colossae. Because remember, Paul has never actually visited here. Paul didn't plant the church. Someone else did. And so Paul is, in a certain sense, writing here a very short systematic theology. Explaining to them, listen guys, this is what you need to believe. This is what you need to do in response to what you believe. As a result of what you believe. And that's why the letter is structured in this way. Because he is writing to them the essentials for what they need as Christians. And that's why I think this is a good epistle to do for Sunday school. Because we all need to be reminded of these things. And we all need to understand these things. We need to understand the gospel. We need to understand the knowledge of Christ and what he's done for us and what God has done for us and how salvation is accomplished. And then, in response to that as believers, we need to understand how to live as Christians. And so that's, what the, that's exactly what the epistle is doing for us. And I think it'll be 
a perfect uh, epistle for us to study. Not that they all aren't, but this one especially, I think, just the way it's laid out, I think we are really going to glean a lot from it. And Paul has got some deep stuff to tell us in this book as we um, look at it in the future. All right, well, we are out of time. So let's pray. I hope you, uh, I, I hope you uh, benefit a little bit from just doing sort of an introduction to this. Did, was it helpful to just kind of get a, a brief overview of what we're going to look at? I didn't want to just start right in verse 1 and say, all right, let's look at Colossians. Verse 1, what does Paul say? No, we want to get a big picture of what he's doing, where he's going with this, so that we can better understand the details. And we'll start chapter 1, verse 1 next week. And I will continually bring us back to this outline here as we proceed through the book so we can remember where we are and where we're going. All right? All right, let's pray. Um, Lord Jesus, we thank you for your great servant, the Apostle Paul, how many letters he wrote for us and and how you've preserved those writings for us for 2,000 years. Well, this is amazing that we get to study these things and we get to study them in our own language. We thank you for the translators who brought uh, Paul's words into English. And Lord, we thank you Um, most importantly that uh, these are not ultimately Paul's words but rather these are your words as you've inspired each and every one of them by the power of your spirit Lord we pray that we would recognize their authority as we begin to look at those words next week and that they would change us the power would not be in any kind of presentation or anything but that the power would be in what your word actually says and that you would change us through it Lord, bless our study of Colossians as we begin next week and help us to be changed and become more like you as we study carefully everything that your word has to say to us. Pray now that you'd prepare us to worship you in spirit and truth and that you'd bless Pastor Adam as he brings the word to us this morning. In your holy and precious name we pray, amen.